Our text is 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 through 13, which if you're using one of the Bibles provided in the pew, uh, is found on page 956. However, I'd like you to hold on to our text and turn back to Acts chapter 19. I do want to begin in Acts 19 with verse 23. What had happened was that Paul had ministered the gospel uh, in Ephesus for a significant period of time. Uh, Churches have been planted in Ephesus. Uh, Those churches are being shepherded. Uh, This is a result of Paul's uh, missionary ministry, his apostolic ministry, uh, planting churches all over the Mediterranean world. And I want to pick this up in Acts 19 at verse 23. Verse 23, About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. And that is, there arose in Ephesus... No little disturbance concerning the way. Uh, we, we would call it Christianity. Uh, but the Bible doesn't use the word Christianity. That word wasn't coined yet. Uh, people referred to Christianity as the way because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. About that time, there arose a little distur- not a, uh, no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis brought no little business to the craftsmen. So uh, these craftsmen were making silver shrines of the goddess Artemis, a false goddess. And uh, these silver shrines were used in the worship of this false goddess. These shrines were used in idolatry. So a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, that's the Roman province of Asia, But in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. The Bible calls them idols. And uh, here, this unbeliever uh, has understood something of the message the Apostle Paul And other believers that have been saved under his ministry have been proclaiming, not only in Ephesus, but also throughout the whole region. Uh, He says that Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be even deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. You see, the gospel calls idolaters to forsake their idolatry and turn to the one Lord, Jesus Christ, in worship of the one true God. The gospel calls you away from your idols, to forsake your idols, and to turn to the one true God. And so, 
as the Spirit was blessing the proclamation of the gospel, there were many, not only in Ephesus, but throughout the region, who had turned away from idolatry to the worship of the one true God through Jesus Christ. And that was making a financial impact, negatively, on those who made these idols, and made these shrines to be used in idolatry. So verse 27, there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, that she may be even deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And a riot practically breaks out as these tradesmen who are losing money because their idols are not being purchased anymore, these tradesmen rile up the whole city of Ephesus. And the people crowd into the theater. And uh, they they, they drag with them some of the the co-workers of the Apostle Paul. And and, and Paul wants to go in there to the theater uh, to stand for the one true God, to defend the gospel. But his fellow workers will not allow him to go into that theater because they are concerned if he goes in there, they're going to take his life. That is how angry they are about what has happened with idolaters being turned into worshipers of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In God's providence, city magistrates bring that riot to an end. Restore order to the city. And God protects Paul and his other missionaries in Ephesus. Now, with that background, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Wherever Paul went with the gospel, he called idolaters to forsake their idolatry. To be a Christian, if you once were an idolater, means that you are now a former idolater. That you are no longer an idolater. And yet there is certainly temptation to, while naming the name of Christ, to continue in idolatry. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and following, we read, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Notice the word idolater twice. Uh, In verse 10, Paul did not mean not to associate with the idolaters of this world. In verse 11, he did mean not to associate with anyone who calls themselves a brother, yet continues to be an Idolater. There is no place for idolatry in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, our text is chapter 8, verses 4 through 13. 
And the wider subject in this section, which begins with verse 1 in this chapter, and it goes through the very beginning of chapter 11, the subject in this section is food sacrificed to idols. It was very clear that to be a Christian, you had to turn your back on idolatry. You could not continue in idolatry and be a Christian. You had to repent of idolatry. But where, 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 where's the line? All right. there, there was certainly pressure, as we saw last time, to continue uh, to eat at the temples of idols and to continue to eat food that had been sacrificed to an idol. We saw last time that Corinth's social and civic life was very closely connected to its religious life. Idolatry was really a part of day-to-day life. So if you were going to celebrate someone's birthday in that culture, what you would do would you would be you would rent a hall in an idol's temple and you would have a banquet there in the temple of the idol celebrating the birthday. Or it was a wedding celebration. Or it was the celebration of any other great event in the life of your family. You would gather at the local idol temple and you would have a meal there. And the food that you would eat would be food that had been offered to the idol that was worshipped in that temple. Or if you were part of a trade guild, like we just saw in Acts 19, you had a guild of silver workers. If you belonged to a trade guild, that trade guild would have required meals together, um, sometimes on the precincts of a temple. Uh, eating food that had been offered to an idol. The trade guild would seek the favor of the god or the goddess upon their guild. Or in the civic life of the city, the, the, the city would have different festivals. And, and part of the festival would be eating food that had been offered to idols. The city was seeking the favor of the gods or the goddesses. And really, if you were going to make a break with eating at the temples, make a break with eating food that had been offered to idols, it was going to be costly. Because you could no longer participate in many of the things that were very important in family life, in civic life, and in business life. You could be severely ostracized. You could be seen as, well, you don't care about our city. You don't care about our, our trade guild. You don't care about our family. So there'd be a lot of pressure. And it'd be easy to say, well, an idol isn't really anything. You know, it, it's an image of a false god. It's, it's, a, it's a nothing. It doesn't really exist. I, I know in my head that there's only one true God. So can't I go ahead and go to these meals, eat the food, knowing 
uh, that there is only one true God, and in my heart, I worship the one true God. Isn't that okay? Here's the issue. And we're jumping now into the middle of this section where Paul addresses eating food sacrificed to idols. We're jumping into the middle of the section. If you did not hear the message from last week, listen to it uh, so that you can be brought up to speed. We also are jumping into the middle of an ongoing communication between the Apostle Paul and the church in Corinth about the issue of idolatry and food sacrifice to idols. Paul certainly would have taught on this when he was in Corinth for 18 months, when he was planting the church, when he was nurturing the, the, new, the new church. And so this is not the first time for him to be communicating with them about this. Um, back in chapter 7, verse 1, we see an indication that Paul is uh, responding to a letter from the Corinthian church. Uh, so the, the Corinthians have brought up this subject of food, sacrifice to idols. And Paul is responding to what they wrote in their letter. Now, last week I told you that there are two main interpretations of the problem in Corinth regarding food offered to idols. The most common view, which I do not agree with, is that the issue was that you had some in the church in Corinth who understood rightly that the Christian has liberty uh, to eat food that has been sacrificed, that is known to have been sacrificed to an idol. A Christian has liberty uh, to eat in the temple of an idol. Uh, but that there were others in the church uh, whose conscience did not allow them uh, to, to eat the meat, to go to the temple meals. And, and so Paul's concern was that those who recognized this liberty uh, would not uh, make their weaker brothers uh, to, to do something that was contrary to their conscience. So there's a division, in this first view, there's a division within the church between those who rightly understand they have liberty and those whose conscience do not allow them to do this. Now, there's a second view that I hold to. It's the view that the early church held on this. Uh, it, is a church, it is a view that is making a comeback in the commentaries. I agree with the second view. The second view is that it is never right for a Christian to eat food that the Christian knows has been sacrificed to an idol. We saw last week in Acts 15 uh, with the Jerusalem Council that the instruction that they sent to the churches uh, with giving instruction for Gentiles, how they are to live, one of the instructions there was that you are not to eat food sacrificed to idols. We saw in Revelation, in two letters, that the exalted Christ uh, wrote through John to the churches in, in Asia Minor. We saw in two of those letters that they were rebuked 
for some of their members eating food that was known to have been sacrificed to an idol. In chapter 10 of our text, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 through 22, uh, Paul will speak against eating food known to have been offered to idols. He will speak against it as idolatry. I want you to go forward to chapter 10 and look at verse 14. I'm going to remind you of this. See where Paul is going. Chapter 10, verse 14, he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we drink, is it not a participation in the body of, of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Or are we stronger than He? So in these verses, Paul speaks against eating food that you know has been sacrificed to an idol. He speaks against it as idolatry. So what was going on in Corinth was the church was trying to justify eating food that they knew had been sacrificed to idols. And we can understand the pressure that they would have felt to try to justify that. They've been trying to justify that. Now Paul's responding to what they're doing and trying to justify eating the food sacrificed to idols. But before making this point in chapter 10, that it is idolatry, the apostle speaks against the lack of love that the Corinthians were showing in how they were using their supposed right to eat food known to have been offered to idols and to eat in the temples of idols. They were showing a lack of love in how they were using the knowledge that they believed that they possessed. And that's what our text in chapter 8 is about. Paul is confronting their lack of love in how they're going about this whole thing. Now, we have seen the Apostle handle various problems in the Corinthian church in a similar, comprehensive way. Think about what we studied in chapters 1 through 4, where the Apostle addressed the problem of factions in the church that were based on the personality and style of various preachers in the church. Remember? I am of Paul, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Apollos. No, I, I am of Christ. Remember those, those factions, that party spirit? Well, Paul did not just teach that such behavior is wrong in the church. He addressed the values of the Corinthians that reflected more of the world than Christ. He really sought to get down to the heart of the issue and comprehensively deal with all the problems in their hearts and in their behavior connected with these factions in the church. So he spent 
four chapters on that. And we have something similar here in chapters 8 through 10. Paul could simply say, it's idolatry to eat the food that you know has been offered to an idol. It's idolatry to go into an idol's temple and eat there. But he doesn't just say that. No, there's more going on in the hearts of the Corinthians. And as a faithful shepherd, he addresses all the issues. The apostle is seeking to transform believers on all levels. It was not just a matter of having factions in the church. There was a pride in the heart. There was a a worldliness, an attraction to the wisdom of this world rather than understanding the message of the cross as they ought to have. And here with the the Corinthians, with the matters of the, the idolatry, it's not just a matter of outward behavior. It's also a matter of your heart attitude towards your brothers and sisters in your church. The Apostle teaches that the issue with food offered to idols is whether it is known that the food has been offered to an idol. If if, if it's not known that the food was offered to an idol, but it was, it's, it's fine to eat it. The food has not been tainted by the fact that it was offered to an idol. If if you don't know it was, you you can eat it. Go go forward to chapter 10, verse 25. Chapter 10, verse 25. Paul says, Eat whatever is sold in the meat market. Remember they would take some of that meat that had been offered to the idols that wasn't needed in the banquet, and that would be sold in the marketplace. He says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience, I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So he'll make it very clear at the end of chapter 10. You know, if it's not known uh, whether or not the food was offered to an idol, there's no problem in eating it. The issue is when it is known that it was offered to an idol. Uh, As I said, the view that I take is the view of the early church. Uh, David Garland wrote that the writings of the early church uniformly opposed food sacrifice to idols and appealed to Paul to justify their prohibition. None of the writings of the early, early church appealed to Paul for warrant to eat food offered to idols. No church father felt any need to defend Paul against rumors that he advocated eating food offered to idols or to challenge any alternative interpretation of his epistles. Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 10 that to eat food sacrificed to idols is to have fellowship with demons became the basic Christian argument against eating food offered to idols. So we have every reason to believe there was a unity in the early church um, in interpreting this section of, of, of Scripture in the way that I am doing uh, this, this, this morning. 
a unity and understanding uh, that the scriptures do not allow the Christian to eat food known to have been sacrificed to an idol. To give you a flavor of how the church fathers viewed food offered to idols, I will quote from Augustine. Augustine wrote, quote, It is better to die of hunger than to eat of things offered to idols. Better to die of hunger than to eat food offered to idols. The apostle began uh, this section talking about knowledge and love. Go back to chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And as we study our text this morning, we will see why Paul said what he did in verses 1 through 3. In our text, uh, we will see first truth that you should know, and then we will see four ways that you are to live in the church. These things that Paul says in our text are so important that the apostle has to address them before he comes around to teaching that eating something known to be idle food is idolatry. First of all, the truth that you should know about idols. Look at verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. Now, if you have the ESV, observe the quotation marks. Uh, There are quotation marks around an idol has no real existence, and question marks around there is no God but one. Paul appears to quote here from the Corinthians letter. This is the knowledge that was referred to back in verse 1a. In verse 1, Paul said, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that, quote, all of us possess knowledge. We saw that it appeared to be that he was quoting from their letter. They had written in their letter, trying to justify eating the food offered to idols. All of us possess knowledge. What was this knowledge that they claimed and that they boasted of? Well, it's right here in verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that one, an idol has no real existence, and that two, there is no God but one. The apostle here in verse 4 affirms these two truths. Idols are meant by those who make them to be images of gods and goddesses. And some of the most fundamental teaching in the Bible is that there is only one true God. And that the gods and the goddesses represented by idols are false. They are false conceptions of fallen man. That the gods and goddesses represented by idols exist only in the minds and imaginations of men. That they are not real. In Acts chapter 17, verse 29, when Paul was preaching in Athens, he said, We ought not to think that that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Gods and goddesses represented by idols, that they are formed by the imagination of men. They are not real. The Old Testament repeatedly made these points 
Turn back to Psalm 115. I'm sorry, Psalm 115. Psalm 115, beginning at verse 2. Remember the proclivity of the Israelites to idolatry. Uh, to worship the, the idols that were worshipped by the neighbors who lived around them. Again and again the Old Testament calls them to forsake idolatry. Psalm 115 verse 2. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throats. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. The Bible is clear uh, that there is no real existence to an idol. The gods and goddesses represented them, but represented by them are false. They do not truly exist. In 1 Corinthians, coming back to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, in verse 5, Paul continues. He says, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through, whom, and through whom we exist. Paul says there are many so-called gods and lords. Gods and lords in name only. There are many so-called gods and lords. Here, gods probably refers to the traditional pantheon of Greek and Roman mythology, while the word lords probably refers to the deities of the mystery cults that people in Corinth worshipped. Yet as Bible-believing Christians, we know and believe the truth that there is only one true God. In verse 6, Paul speaks of both God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in parallel. He differentiates between their persons, the person of the Father, and the person of Christ, while affirming an equality in essence. Note that in verse 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and, and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. He speaks of them in parallel, as being one in essence. Verse 6 says, All things are from the Father. That the Father is the creator of all things. That He is the source of all things. And that therefore nothing lies outside of His jurisdiction. Verse 6 says that we exist for the Father. That we exist for His purposes. He is our creator and He has created us for His own sake. He has created us for His own purposes. We exist for His purposes. We exist for Him. And Paul says, all things are through the Lord Jesus Christ. That the Father created all things through the Son. And that the Lord Jesus Christ is the sustainer of all things. That He upholds all things by the word of His power. 
And Paul says, through the Lord Jesus Christ, we exist. We as believers exist through the Lord Jesus Christ, physically and spiritually. Both creation and redemption are from the Father, through the Lord Jesus Christ, and for the glory of the Father. Now the unbelieving world turns all of this upside down. Instead of believing in the God who created us, the world creates its own gods. Instead of believing in the God who created us for His purposes, the world creates gods that exist for man's purposes. And so, the people of Corinth had gods and goddesses for almost everything imaginable under the sun. Instead of believing in the true God whom we need for everything, including our very existence, the world creates gods that need us. And it's not just paganism that does this. The Word of Faith movement subtly does this with the true God. Distorting the true God into a God that's more like a pagan God. Here in our text, Paul is affirming some of the most fundamental teaching of the Bible about the nature of God. Teaching that reveals idols to be of no real existence. The teaching that there is only one true God and one true Lord, and that the one true Lord is of one essence with the Father. This is the truth that you should know. Now, how should you and I live in the church of the true and living God? The Apostle tells us in the rest of our text. In verse 7, the point is, understand that some believers do not have the knowledge you have. Understand that some believers do not have the knowledge that you have. Look closely at verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge. He's saying not all believers possess this knowledge. All believers may profess these truths, but for some believers, the truths they profess are not fully possessed in their day-to-day thinking. Not fully possessed in their daily mindset. Now, literally, the beginning of verse 7 is as it's rendered in the New King James Version. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. Meaning that knowledge is not yet internalized in every believer. The language is different from verse 1. In verse 1 it said all of us possess knowledge or all of us have knowledge. The wording in the original is different here in uh, verse 7. Literally, however, there is not in everyone that knowledge. It's not yet internalized in every believer. In verse 1, Paul apparently quoted the Corinthian words, all of us possess knowledge. Now in verse 7, he qualifies that. Why does Paul say here in verse 7, however, not all possess this knowledge, or this knowledge is not in all? Look at the rest of the verse. He says, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Notice here in this verse that Paul says some Christians have a weak conscience. The conscience is the depository of an individual's moral beliefs and principles that makes judgments about what is right and wrong. The conscience is a moral compass within a person. And Paul says some Christians have a weak conscience. 
A weak conscience is one that is unable to make right moral judgments because it is not yet as informed by the Word of God as it ought to be. Some Christians have a weak conscience and formerly lived lives of idolatry. And Paul says, if some of these Christians who have a weak conscience and formerly lived lives of idolatry, if some of them know, uh, sorry, if some of them eat food that they know has been offered to an idol, they will eat it with the same mindset they had before being saved. In their mind, when they eat that food, they will be worshiping the idol. They are not able in their heart and mind to detach the eating of the food from the worship of that idol. And Paul says, if such believers do so, their conscience will be what? He says their conscience will be defiled. The word defiled can also be translated soiled. It's something that is clearly negative. You don't want your conscience to be defiled. This is not God's will that your conscience would be defiled. It's contrary to His will. Those believers who have a former life of idolatry, been saved out of that, have a weak conscience, they may, if they eat that food in the idol's temple, they may do so in their mind as an act of worship of that idol. They can't detach it in their mind. They profess the truth, but the truth has not been as internalized as it ought to be. In that condition, they cannot detach it in their mind. And so as they eat that food, they are defiling their conscience. Sometimes we proudly assume that all believers have the knowledge that we have. And we wrongly believe that they should be able to do everything that we do. We lack the love that recognizes that our brother has not internalized the knowledge we have. Puffed up with knowledge and devoid of love, we are blind to how defiling something can be to our brother's conscience. Puffed up with knowledge and devoid of love, we lack care for our brother's conscience. And this is not just with food offered to idols. Now, in some parts of the world, food offered to idols is an issue today. My understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, but correct me after the service, please. My understanding is that Hindus offer food to idols. I think if you go to India, you will find a lot of that. My understanding is that Buddhists offer food to their deceased ancestors in worship. One commentator said that in Chinese culture, a refusal to eat food offered to one's ancestors can be viewed as a refusal to love your parents and a refusal to be Chinese. It's that important in that culture, in that society, in that religion. But in our culture, food offered to idols is not an issue. We praise God that in our culture, food offered to idols is not an issue. But what we are studying can be applied to other issues that we do face today in this part of the world. Like the Corinthians, we also can proudly use biblical knowledge to justify our behavior even when our behavior is sinful. And we can have a clear conscience about our behavior even when it is sinful. While some other believers cannot do 
the same. We can use biblical knowledge to wrongly justify our behavior. We can use biblical knowledge to justify our behavior and to do some things that other believers cannot do with a clear conscience. This is not just something unique to Corinth. And we too need to learn from what Paul is saying that not all our brothers possess the knowledge that we have. We need to learn from what what Paul is saying. We need to learn from what Paul is saying that if they were to do what we do, their conscience would be defiled. Like many of the Corinthians who were saved out of pagan religion, some of our brothers were saved out of false religion. There may be practices that were tied up with their false religion that you believe you can do with a clear conscience because of the biblical knowledge that you have, but if they were to continue these practices, it would defile their conscience. Our text says you need to understand this. In a, in a future message, we'll go more into connecting the issue with the, the idols and the, the food to our day. But let's go on in our text. This leads into the next point in our text, verse, in, in verses 8 through 10. The point is take care that your right does not become a stumbling block to other believers. Take care that your right does not become a stumbling block to other believers. Look at verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Notice in verse 9, Paul talks about this right of yours. Paul's talking about a supposed right that the Corinthians were claiming for themselves. It's connected to what Paul says both in verse 8 and in verse 10. Back in verse 8, Paul refers to teaching that the Corinthians had in mind. Look at verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. This is teaching that the Corinthians had in mind. Uh, when they were eating the food that had been sacrificed to idols, when they were going to the temples for these banquets, they had in mind this teaching, food will not commend us to God, we're no worse off if we do uh, not eat, and no better off if we do. Elsewhere, Paul taught the truth of verse 8 in connection with clean and unclean foods. And this goes all the way back to what Jesus taught and to what the Lord later said to Peter in Acts chapter 10. Listen to what Jesus taught um, in Mark 7 regarding clean and unclean. Mark 7 verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? And then Mark tells us, Thus he declared all foods clean. Those words of Jesus came up when Jesus was being accused by the Pharisees 
of allowing his disciples to eat without going through the ceremonial cleansing of their hands. And so Jesus says, it's not the foods that you eat that go into your mouth that make you unclean. It's what comes out of your heart that makes you unclean. It's the wickedness that comes out of your heart, the, the evil that comes out of your heart, as seen in your actions and so forth. This is what makes you unclean. And Mark tells us, with, with Jesus saying this, he was declaring all foods clean. Because he came to fulfill the law, including the ceremonial law, that in the Old Covenant forbid an Israelite from eating certain types of food. Those laws about clean food and unclean food were meant to separate the Israelites from the other nations until the coming of Christ. But with Christ coming, He declared all foods clean. Turn over to Acts chapter 10. Here's something else that would have been on the Corinthians' minds. Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 9. Peter has not yet internalized the truth that all foods are now clean. Along with that, he's not internalized the truth that now he can go into the home of a Gentile with the gospel. He can sit at a table to eat with a Gentile. Acts chapter 10, verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. In the Old Covenant, you could not eat pork, you could not eat shrimp or things like that. Only the things on the clean list. Peter, in this vision from the Lord, he sees animals on the unclean list. And the Lord tells him to eat these animals. How can I do this? I've never eaten anything unclean. But the point got through to him. Jesus had declared all foods clean. The gospel is now to go forth from the Jews to the Gentiles. There no longer is this separation that the Jews have to maintain between themselves and the Gentiles. Now, they are called by the risen Christ to go with the gospel into the homes of Gentiles, to sit at table with Gentiles, to eat with Gentiles, and to share the gospel with them. What was unclean is now clean. The food and the Gentile person. Paul taught the same. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, Paul said, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons 
through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Paul brings up false teachers who in his day were forbidding or in the future would forbid people from eating certain foods. And Paul says this is contrary to the will of God. God has created all foods uh, to be enjoyed as gifts from Him with thanksgiving to Him. Now coming back to our text, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and better off if we do. The Corinthians knew this in regarding the clean and the unclean foods. But then they wrongly applied this to the issue of food that was known to have been sacrificed to an idol. They looked at this teaching about food and said, we have a right. We have a right to eat any food. Yeah, they did have a right to eat the unclean food. Paul says in verse 9, But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. The Christian has freedom to eat both food that under the Old Covenant was clean and food that under the Old Covenant was unclean. However, Seventh-day Adventism fails to recognize this. The Corinthians seized on this freedom, this right, and they wrongly applied it to eating food in the temple of an idol, to food that had been offered to an idol. And Paul will later challenge this on the grounds that this is idolatry. That's coming in chapter 10. But for now, he challenges this on the grounds that it is unloving. Look closely at what he says in verses 9 and 10. For it is written in the law of Moses... I'm sorry... Wrong chapter. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? Paul uses the term stumbling block. Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Here a stumbling block is something that trips up another in their walk with Christ. Something that leads another into sin. And the Corinthians justified their eating in an idol's temple by appealing to their own knowledge. Now, if if you have the ESV, there's a footnote for that word eating in verse 10. And the footnote, if you go down to see what it says, the footnote says in Greek, reclining at table. That's the literal meaning of the Greek word, reclining at table. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge reclining at table in an idol's temple. Because that's how they would eat a meal. They wouldn't sit upright like we do. They would recline at the table to eat. Now, the Corinthians justified their reclining at table or their eating in an idol's temple by appealing to their own knowledge. Paul points that out. If anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple. Paul asks rhetorically, if someone sees you doing this, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? Or the question is literally as rendered in the Legacy Standard Bible, for if someone sees you who have knowledge Dining in an idol's temple will not his conscience, if he is weak, 
be built up to eat things sacrificed to idols? Will not his conscience be built up to eat things sacrificed to idols? Now, the Corinthians may have been seeing this as a good thing. All right, I have some brothers who have a weak conscience. They don't know all that they should know. All right, I have this knowledge. Now, I need to impart this knowledge to them, and they need to be taught to act according to that knowledge that we all have. So I'm going to build them up by encouraging them to go ahead and eat in the temple. They could have seen this as a good thing, what Paul describes here in verse 10. But Paul says, this amounts to making your weak brother stumble. That's how he prefaces it in verse 9. Making your brother stumble. Being a stumbling block to them. For in verse 7, Paul said, A brother with a weak conscience and former association with idols who eats idol food, eats it as really offered to an idol, and their conscience is defiled. Now Paul will drive home the seriousness of this wrong. Of through your example, encouraging your brother with a weak conscience to do this. Paul will drive home the seriousness of this wrong in verse 11. But right now, I want you to let verse 9 sink into your heart and mind. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Do you now see why Paul started this whole section as he did in verse 1? Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. For the Corinthians, knowledge meant the right to act in freedom. But rather than their brother being rightly built up, their brother was being made to stumble. And that will be the effect on others if you have knowledge without love. For your brother to truly be built up, the use of your knowledge must be governed by biblical love. Love means freely giving up your supposed rights for the sake of others and for the sake of their well-being. Parents do this with their children all the time. You, know, you, you think we, we tend to think you know, we have a right to some peace and quiet, a right have a restful evening after a day of work. But if you have children, you realize, I have to sacrifice those rights. I'm responsible for these children. They're dependent upon me. I have to put aside my supposed right to a peaceful evening or a restful evening. They have a need, so I have to sacrifice something for their well-being. Parents understand this. And all of us in the body of Christ need to do this with one another. Freely giving up our rights for the sake of others, for the sake of their well-being. Verse 9 says, take care or watch out. Be careful that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So let me ask you, beloved brethren, What do you care more about? Do you care more about your list of rights? 
Or do you care more about the spiritual well-being of others? Which do you care more about? Paul is teaching biblical love here. It is very easy to think that you are mature in the Lord because of all the knowledge that you think you have about God and His Word. And in reality, be extremely immature because you have no sensitivity to the spiritual well-being of your brothers who do not have the same knowledge that you have. That brings us to verses 11 through 12, where Paul's point is understand the, the destruction that you can cause with such knowledge. Understand the destruction that you can cause with such knowledge. Look with me at verse 11. He says, And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. By your knowledge, this weak person, as you exercise your supposed right, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. Destroyed. That's a very strong word, is it not? And you see, if you trace this word to the New Testament, you see it is a strong word. In Matthew 10, verse 28, Jesus said, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Eternal judgment is described in Scripture as destruction. Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 18.14 is a verse where in the English we have the word perish, but it comes from the same Greek word for destroy. Matthew 18.14, So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish, that not one of these little ones should be destroyed. This Greek word is often translated with perish, like John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, whoever believes in Him shall not perish. Right? The Bible speaks of an eternal perishing, eternal destruction. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 9-10 through 10, We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the, the, the destroyer. Looking back at how God judged the Israelites in the wilderness. He destroyed some of them with serpents. He destroyed others with the, the, the angel of the, of the Lord. Right? He destroyed some in judgment. James 4.12 There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? God is spoken of as the one who is able to save and to destroy. Jude 5 Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Again, the destruction of of the rebellious Israelites in the wilderness. He destroyed them. As in Romans 14.15, where the context is similar, this word destroy here in our text means to destroy your brother's spiritual well-being and growth. Paul says, Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a... I'm sorry. Verse 11, And so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed. Their spiritual well-being, their growth, destroyed by your knowledge, by your exercise of your supposed right. There is no stronger word that Paul could have used for what he's referring to than this word destroy. Paul is not talking about loss of salvation. Salvation cannot be lost. Paul is talking about 
us leading a former idolater back into the grips of idolatry. He's talking about leading a brother back into the sins of his old life. He calls this destroying your brother. He says in verse 11, And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. Now because of the grace of God operating in the believer through the Holy Spirit, this will not amount to the brother falling away from the faith. The Lord preserves his own. But Paul says in effect that when you act like this, you act against the very thing the Holy Spirit is doing in their life. To sanctify them, to make them like Jesus, you're doing just the opposite. Brothers and sisters, how could we do this, what Paul is describing, how could we do this to a brother in view of the truth spoken about our brother at the end of verse 11? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Be mindful that every brother and sister in this room is someone for whom Christ died. Be mindful that every brother and sister in Christ throughout the world is someone for whom Christ died. Christ loved your brother. Christ loved your sister in giving up his life for them. He died for them to save them. But would you do something that would destroy them? When your Savior spilled his precious blood to save them? How could I do this to one for whom Christ died? Those who lack love for their brothers especially need to recognize this. That Jesus died for your brother. He died for your sister. Paul is again bringing us back to the cross. He goes back to the cross again, again, and again. We're to be very affected in all that we do by the cross. Because Jesus gave up his life for us, and because he gave up his life for our brethren, there's a certain way that we are to think of our brethren, a certain way that we are to treat them, a certain way that we are to care for them, a certain way that we are to, to love them. And Paul goes on in verse 12. He says, Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Notice that we do sin against our brothers. Yes, our sin is first and foremost against God. David said in Psalm 51, Against you and you only have I sinned. Our sin is first and foremost against God. But there, in a secondary sense, we do sin against one another. By sinning against one another, we are sinning against God. When we break God's instructions for how we are to treat one another, we are sinning against one another. And Paul says, Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Have you ever thought of that before? That if you were to sin against that brother or sister who is sitting across from you this morning, that you would sin against Christ. By sinning against them, you'd sin against Christ. How is that? It's because your brother or sister is in Christ, is united to Christ. Christ. 
In Acts chapter 9, verse 4, the risen Christ appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus. Appeared in all of his glory to, to Saul. We read in Acts 9, 4 that falling on the ground, Paul heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who do we know that Saul was persecuting? He was persecuting Christians. He's going to Damascus to arrest Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem to stand trial. He was persecuting Christians. But Jesus doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? Or Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my followers? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? To persecute a Christian is to persecute Christ. Because the Christian is in Christ. Is united to Christ. And so we read in Matthew 25 when Jesus speaks about the future judgment of the sheep and the goats. We read that the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. The sheep will say, you know, when, when did we ever see you, you know, without clothes, clothes and, and we clothed you? When did we ever see you in prison and, 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 and we visited you? When did we ever see you hungry and, and, and we fed you? And Jesus, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. If you do it to a Christian, you do it to Christ. If you visit that, that brother in prison... Or if you feed that brother, you clothe that brother, you're doing it to Christ because you're united to Him. And on the flip side, the goats in Matthew 25 verse 45 will answer the king saying, Truly I say to you, I'm, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, the king will, will answer the goats saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. To not feed your brother. To not visit your sister is to do that to Christ. So here we see in our text, verse 12, Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Beloved brethren, understand from our text the destruction that you can cause with your supposed knowledge. We can get so puffed up with knowledge from the Scriptures. And we are devoid of love. First of all, love for God, love for people. Then we cling to our freedoms, our rights that we think we have based on this knowledge. We're devoid of love for our brother. And we act in a way that shows no consideration for their conscience. No consideration for their soul. And by our reckless behavior, we encourage them to do something that will defile their conscience. And Paul says, in doing so, we destroy them. We are actively destroying our brother. We are sinning against them. We're sinning against Christ. Is it right 
for the Christians in Corinth to go into those idol temples and to eat that food in those idols? No. Because by doing so, they can do this to their brother. They can destroy their brother. They can sin against their brother. And so doing sin against Christ. Because of this, Paul's last point is in verse 13. His point is, be willing to forego your rights for the sake of your brother's soul. Look with me at verse 13. Paul says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Now notice that Paul does not say, If food offered to idols makes my brother stumble, I will never eat food offered to idols. He doesn't say that because he knows that it is idolatry when the food is known to have been offered to idols. And he would never consider eating food that he knows has been offered to an idol. But he eats other meat, and he communicates here in verse 13 the priority that we must place on our brother's soul over our own rights and freedoms. Therefore, if food, something that Paul did eat, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never, it's very emphatic, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Biblical love, not our rights, must determine our conduct. You must place the good of your brother over your freedoms. You are called to forego your rights for the sake of your brother's soul. Acting in love requires radically forfeiting what you may regard as your right. And in the next chapter, Paul will elaborate on his personal renunciation of rights. Let me ask you, my friend, have you realized that you were not made to care only about yourself? There's so many people who walk around this world with the mindset that they only need to care about themselves. Have you realized that you were not made to care only about yourself? And for that matter, you were not made to care even primarily about yourself. We were created to live for God. We were created to worship God. We were created to bring God glory. We were created to love God with all of our heart, soul, and strength and mind and to love our neighbor as ourself. We were never meant to live for ourselves. It's always been to live for God and then out of love for God to live in love for anyone that God places around me. And yet... In the fall, in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, who were created perfect, Adam and Eve, who loved God and loved one another, they fell into sin. They fell into rebellion against God. And while they had been turned outward in worship to God and turned outward to one another in love, in their rebellion they turned inward. Inward to self. And began to live for self. Understand that living for self is not natural when we look at the whole scope of things. Living for self is rebellious. 
rebellious against God and God's design. But in another sense, it is natural to live for ourselves. We are born dead in trespasses and sins. We come into this world in a fallen condition. In our fallen condition, that's what we live for. In our fallen condition, we live for self. Self is number one. I have to protect myself. I have, I have to, to, to get my rights. I have to pursue my dreams. We live for self. And this is utterly corrupt. This is an, an indication of our fallen, corrupt condition that we find it so easy to live for ourselves rather than living for God and in love for others. And for this, we deserve God's eternal judgment. We deserve to, to, to suffer God's wrath in hell for our rebellion against God. And yet, in God's grace and mercy, He has sent us a Redeemer. He sent us His own Son. And God, God didn't just give a, some, some way of salvation. He sent His Son. His Son became flesh. His Son became one of us. His, the, the Son was sent as the Savior. The Son came as the Redeemer. And He died upon that cross to pay for the sins of His people, to free us from sin, to, to free us from the wages of sin, the penalty of sin, that eternal judgment of God, and He died upon the cross to save us from the power of sin. That we would no longer live in bondage to sin, that we would no longer live as worshipers of self, and of man-made gods and idols. But now that we would be, having been set free by the blood of Christ, we would live for the one true God, and for His Son, Jesus Christ. And out of love for God, we would now love others. We would love our neighbors, ourselves, and we would have a, a special love for our brethren in Christ. We are not stuck in living for ourselves, but so often we have to do battle with the flesh. And so often we find ourselves, in the middle of the Christian life, in the middle of the church, we find ourselves living more for self than for God in love for our brethren. That was the case in Corinth. That's what Paul was addressing in chapter 8. And so, I don't even want to try in this message to get into specifics, practical specifics. How does this carry over? I'm going to focus on the heart issue. I'm going to focus on what Paul was driving at. It's not so much, can I do this, can I do that? It's you need to love the souls of your brothers and sisters in Christ. The Corinthians were, 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 were puffed up with this knowledge. And so they were showing no consideration for some of their brethren. We should study the Word of God. We should grow in the knowledge of God. Israel was destroyed for lack of knowledge. But that knowledge must translate into love for God and love for others 
including our brother, our sister. And so if you take that away from this passage, you're taking away the most important thing in this passage. And it's so important, this whole idea of surrendering our rights for the sake of our brothers and sisters and for the sake of, of, of God's purpose in the lives of others. It's so important that Paul is going to give a whole chapter, chapter 9, to talking about how he has surrendered his rights for the sake of the gospel. When Christ has died for your brother and sister, cannot you give up those petty rights for their good, for their spiritual well-being, for their growth in Christ? The answer ought to be clear to each one of us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. Now we need your Holy Spirit to help us to connect this passage with the specifics of our lives, with the specific situations that we may be in now or that we may be in next week or next month or next year. Lord, lead us in applying in this. And it begins with asking you to grow us in love for our brothers and our sisters. Lord, teach us to get to know our brothers and sisters. Teach us to care for their souls in our conversations with them. That our conversations would not just be about the trivial things that the world talks about, but that we would quickly get to the eternal matters, the matters of the heart, the matters of the soul, the matters of the Christian life. We pray, Father, that you would find us faithful in praying for the spiritual well-being of all of our brothers and sisters in this congregation. And Lord, as we grow in love for one another, a love that reflects the love that you have shown us at the cross, Lord, make us sensitive to those things that we need to be sensitive to. Lord, show us where we are taking knowledge and we are misapplying that. And Lord, may your church be built up as your people who know the truth love one another. Speak the truth in love for the edification of each individual and the edification of the whole. That you would be glorified. Lord, may we not be like the Corinthian church. Lord, may you give us the grace to be different. May you give us the grace to follow the instruction you are giving us here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.